0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: I'm
2: Ella. And I'm Annie. And you're listening to Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstories of science.
1: Oh my God, is this Stanley Milgram's writing? I think so.
2: So a few months ago, Ella, you and I took this trip to Yale University to root around in the archives of Stanley Milgram. We
1: did. And we had to whisper because, you know, library rules. He had really good handwriting.
2: Stanley Milgram was a social scientist in the 60s and 70s. And if you know him, it's probably for some pretty memorable research that he did with a fake shock machine.
1: Answer. Wrong. 150
0: volts.
2: Yeah, so Milgram was the guy who showed that we will totally shock strangers with what we think are 150 volts of electricity because someone in a lab coat asked us to.
1: But not all of Milgram's experiments were quite this disturbing. Not all that dark. Relatively speaking, some of them were kind of warm and fuzzy. Like, in the 60s, he got curious about how connected Americans were. So to find out, he writes a letter. Oh, here we go. All right. Uh, We are looking at the communications project mailing. This is what they sent out to people. And it says... We need your help with an unusual scientific study. Milgram picks some
2: random people in Kansas, sends them this kind of strange letter, and he gives them a challenge. Can they get this letter to a stranger halfway across the country?
1: Right, and not just any stranger. Alice Mahon, former school teacher, resident of Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: So the catch is that they can't just send the letter to Alice.
1: They have to send it to
2: someone who they know personally, and, and like first name basis personally. Because the idea is you're sending it to someone who's going to help you get the letter to Alice through a chain of people.
1: Right. So, for example, I get the letter. I send it to my former landlord. I was very surprised to hear from me. <laughs> a little out of the blue. <laughs> she sends it to her college roommate and so on, who sends it to Alice Mayen. That's one way this could happen. Your help is greatly appreciated. Sincerely, Stanley Milgram. Yeah, this, this looks like spam.
2: June Shields in Wichita, Kansas, does not think this is spam.
1: and She decided to send it to Augusta in New York. Who sent it to Robert, who sent it to Meg. Sent it to Florence Monomica. McNamara. McNamara. It looks like it took a chain of 10 people to get this particular letter to Alice. But Milgram found that a lot of the time, the chains were shorter. Across the entire experiment, he found the average number of links between two randomly selected Americans was six.
2: Six Links. Six Degrees of Separation. So maybe you haven't heard of Stanley Milgram. I am willing to bet you have heard of Six Degrees of Separation because it's kind of become this pop culture meme. I read somewhere that everybody on this planet
3: is separated by only six other people. Six Degrees of Separation.
2: That is Stalker Channing. She's playing the Upper East Side sophisticate Louisa Kittridge in the movie Six Degrees of Separation, based on the Broadway play. There's the Film Geeks game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. There's actually a No Doubt song about this. And somewhere along the line, it's like we forgot to ask. This whole Six Degrees thing? Is it even true? I mean, are we really going to extrapolate from a few chain letters in the
1: 1960s to the entire world's social connections? Today on the show, do we live in a six degrees world? The people who figured this out were actually two mathematicians. They cracked this problem in a world before MySpace, before LinkedIn, before Facebook. And not only did they figure this out, they created a new scientific field in the process. That's all coming up on Undiscovered. So it's 1995. The Six Degrees of Separation movie had come out a few years earlier. I personally loved it. Didn't make a lot of money. But most people did think Will Smith did a good job. And this summer,
2: the summer of 95, a graduate student named Duncan Watts is in Ithaca, New York. He's studying math at Cornell. Duncan's from Australia
4: grew up in a in a small town in Queensland called Toowoomba.
1: He moved to the US not knowing anybody. And this is the dark ages. It's 1995, which means you can't just Skype home.
4: I used to write letters. Mm. I'd type them up and then I would make photo, you know, 30 photocopies and then take them all to the post office and because the phone was over a dollar a minute.
1: To make things worse, Duncan's research, it doesn't exactly lend itself to an active social life. In the summer of 1995, He's studying a bug. Actually, the sound of a bug.
4: I'll do my best to, to simulate it. It's sort of a...
2: That is Duncan's best snowy tree cricket. So snowy tree crickets have a reputation in the bug world because they do one thing extremely well. They all chirp in perfect sync, perfectly
1: together. Duncan wanted to figure out how they achieve this perfect sink by measuring how the crickets space out their chirps. He actually has a stable of these little guys, these live crickets that he caught in the Cornell orchard. And named.
4: He started calling them Hercules and Prometheus and Odysseus.
2: <laughs> Get it? Because Odysseus was from Ithaca in Greece. Duncan is in Ithaca, New York. That is a grad student joke. Mm -hmm.
1: Very good. So snowy tree crickets, they only chirp at night, which means that suddenly Duncan's spending a lot of his evenings holed up in the lab with Odysseus in this totally soundproof room measuring cricket chirps.
4: And some nights nothing would happen. The cricket would, you know, they'd get kind of freaked out sitting there by themselves in a soundproof chamber. And so they wouldn't chirp.
2: How long do you wait?
4: I would wait for hours. You know, I was just sitting there in the dark by myself.
1: (laughs) Those nights, Duncan did a lot of thinking. And one of the things he thought about was something his dad said on one of those calls to Australia.
4: My dad just mentioned very much off the cuff. He said, have you ever heard of this this idea that you're only six handshakes away from the president of the United States? And I hadn't heard of it, but he said, you know, well, you, you've shaken hands with someone, you've shaken hands with someone who's shaking hands with someone who's shaking hands with the president. And the claim is that that number is never more than six.
2: Duncan's never heard of Stanley Milgram. He hasn't seen the Six Degrees movie. He is totally captivated by this idea. Because it sounds like a math problem.
4: I wonder if it's true. I wonder if you could prove that it's true. Um, and I wonder if it matters.
1: Is it true that we're all six handshakes away from each other? And does that matter? That's the question. And maybe it's because Odysseus is right there in front of him, refusing to chirp. But to Duncan, these completely unrelated things, Six Degrees and the crickets, they start to sound related. Okay, so here's Duncan's line of thought. And if this sounds a little nuts, just imagine yourself slowly unraveling in a soundproof room. So according to the Six Degrees idea,
2: Everybody on Earth, and this is 1995, so we're going to round up, it's going to be six billion people. They are spread out across different continents and language groups. But that distance is actually deceptive, because we're really all just six handshakes away from one another. But then if you accept for just a second that that's true for people,
1: why couldn't it be true for crickets? Say you've got a tree full of crickets, and they're all chirping in sync. What if every cricket in that tree is just a few chirps away from any other cricket in that tree? Like a six-degree cricket communication network. Is that the secret to how they sync up so well? And if humans and
2: crickets might be organized in these six-degree networks, what else might be?
4: I thought, okay, I'm going to tell Steve about this. You know, I've got to tell him.
0: Duncan one day banged on my door the way he used to do, and I was probably... Locked in my room in my office playing chess on the internet, <laughs> hoping he would go away. <laughs> but he would bang very insistently, Steve, I know you're in there.
2: Steve is Steve Strogatz. He's a Cornell math professor and Duncan's PhD advisor. He is no stranger to Duncan's kind of out there ideas. And true to form, Duncan bursts in and he's like, Steve. Have you heard this thing about how we're all six handshakes away from the president? And Steve's like, yeah, I saw the movie with Will Smith. In fact, the whole idea of Six Degrees, it had stuck with Steve, too. It was
0: um, an astonishment to me more than the movie, which was fine. But this idea that was in the movie and on which the movie was based seemed kind of tantalizing and incredible.
2: He thought what Duncan had thought. Six degrees? That's a math problem.
0: Like, why is the number so small? How does it work? Uh, And I thought that's what he was suggesting. But then he took it much farther than I had. I mean, my vision was quite constricted compared to his.
2: Because Duncan wasn't just asking, are we all six handshakes from the president? He was asking a much bigger question.
1: Is it a big, disconnected world? Or is it a small, hyper-connected world? Not just for people or crickets or social relationships, but for all kinds of networks. Take banks, for example. If banks borrow and lend in a six-degrees
2: network, does that explain how a financial crisis in Thailand
1: bankrupts a hedge fund in Connecticut? Or take pandemics. If we live in a six-degrees world, does that explain how a virus from Africa crops up in Haiti, hits LA and New York, and becomes the global AIDS crisis?
2: Could understanding six-degrees actually lead to better disease models? The implications could be big. So now Steve's excited, too.
0: This was a revolution in front of my eyes, if it could be pulled off.
2: But that's a big if. For one thing, if you were going to put money on who's going to discover the network theory of everything, you would not put it on Steve and Duncan.
1: Steve will tell you himself, he's not a network guy. This isn't his area of math. His area is something called dynamical systems.
0: I thought we're going to be out of our depth. He didn't, Duncan didn't, wasn't even an expert in anything. He's just a grad student, you know, very smart, but... So I have kind of wanted to take a chance on this, but I also knew that it verged on crackpot, you know, ism.
1: <laughs> so Steve made a compromise. They'd work on Six Degrees, but they wouldn't tell anybody. And if they ran into a brick wall, it was back to the soundproof room and little Odysseus.
2: So putting aside crickets and diseases and banks for just a second, just looking at people, are we all connected
1: by Six Degrees? Is it a small world? Or is it a big world? And to figure that out, you need a map, right? You need a map of the world's social connections. And today we have that for about a quarter of the world. It's called Facebook. But in January of 1996, Duncan and Steve, they don't have Facebook, so they don't have a map. Their first step is to change the question.
4: So rather than asking, what does the actual world look like? We said, let's imagine a whole universe of worlds.
1: Duncan and Steve decide to do a thought experiment. They're going to imagine mathematically every way that 6 billion people on Earth could be networked together. And then they'll say, hey, do any of these networks look like that world Duncan's dad was talking about, where everyone is just six handshakes from the president?
2: And they started by imagining the two most extreme ways 6 billion people could be networked together. The theory is you imagine the extreme ends of the spectrum,
1: then you can ask, what's in the middle? Extreme world number one? was a place called Ringworld. Here's Steve.
0: So imagine the six billion people all gathered in some enormous playground. And the teacher has told them, everybody stand in a circle and hold hands.
2: So for some reason, when Steve was describing Ringworld, all I could think about was that 70s commercial, I'd like to buy the world a Coke which, if you haven't seen it, uh, features these beautiful young people. They're from all over the world, all nationalities. They're gathered on this hillside, smiling and singing about Coca-Cola. I
1: I like
2: and that's sort of the idea with Ringworld. You gather all of humanity onto this one hillside, and everyone stands in a circle and holds hands. Right, except this
1: is everyone on earth. So the circle is about a billion miles wide. It's a thought experiment. Okay. Okay. OK. So say
2: you are one of these smiling young people in Ringworld in this big, big ring. Your network is the 100 people closest to you in this ring. So if you yell, the 50 people to your left are going to hear you, the 50 people to your right, but no one else. So those 100 people, that's everybody you know.
0: And now you could ask, in a world like that, if the world were like that, Would it have the six degrees of separation property? Um, And the answer is clearly no, it it will not.
2: So, So here's how I think about it. If I am living in Ringworld and I wanted to say hi to someone who's like 200 people to my left, The way that would work is I would yell hi to my 50th friend, like the furthest person who can hear me on the left. They would yell hi to their 50th friend, and it would keep going like that, kind of like a game of telephone. So four times. Four times until I got to person 200. Okay. That's just four people, right? That's four degrees of separation. But say I wanted to say hi to the person across the ring from me, millions of miles away.
0: 10 to the 7th which, in plain language, would be 60 million. Uh, Is that the number you also got? Yes. 60 million steps to the most distant person.
2: That is 60 million degrees. So
1: ring world is not a six-degrees world. It is a 60 million-degrees world. But that's okay uh, because we've got other options here. That's just one extreme of the spectrum. Right. On the other end, we've got another equally bizarre option to consider. This is Extreme World number 2. Welcome, friends, to Random World.
0: Let's just imagine it'd be sort of like you could do a lottery. And out of the six billion, you know, a hundred names are drawn out of one of those things with the ping pong balls that you see every night on the news. Right after that, America, we have the number 11. So there they are. The hundred, you know, ping pong balls have come out. And those are now your hundred friends. And have fun with them. Okay.
2: In Random World, your best friend could be a tribesman in the Amazon. Maybe your mom is a nurse in Oslo and your spouse is a magazine editor in Malaysia. And because all of your connections are coming out of a pinball machine, the chances that any of these people know each other are just really, really low. So Random World might feel like this big disconnected world. I mean, your spouse is in Malaysia. True, but in degree terms, this world is actually small it is hyper connected because it's not like you know the ring world we just talked about where you're just kind of like hanging out with your friends in your own little corner of the ring in random world your connections span the globe so you can hopscotch around this global network and within a few links you have
1: reached everybody think about it in random world If I have a hundred friends and each of those friends has a hundred friends. So it's like a hundred times a hundred. Right. So by the time that I'm looking at people who are five degrees away from me, my network is
0: 10 billion people, which is more than the number of people on Earth.
1: Game over. Right. Stephen Duncan, they were trying to imagine a six degrees world, a world that is hyper connected, where we're all just a few handshakes away from each other. Game over. We're done. We're not done. Just one problem.
4: It's just not true. It's a ridiculous model of the world.
1: Random World works fine as a thought experiment. You don't live there. Random World assumes that none of your friends know each other, and that's obviously not true. In fact, most of our social networks, pretty ringworldy, Meaning they're cliquish. Uh, case in point, so I went
2: to visit Steve, Duncan's advisor, the math professor mm-hmm. at Cornell, and he has this really nice office. It's on the fifth floor of the math building. And if you think about it, the fifth floor is kind of like a little corner of Ringworld, right? Like, no, nobody's holding hands. But all of these professors know every other professor on the hall, they teach the same students, uh, they probably went to the same grad schools.
0: We shop at the same places, we go to the farmer's market together, our dogs are in the same doggy daycare, uh, and our kids are in the same kitty daycare.
2: Because is a small
1: town, there are no small towns in Random World. So the real question isn't, can we imagine a six degrees world? We just did. It's, can we imagine a six degrees world that actually looks like ours? That is cliquish and connected.
2: So we've got our two extreme ends of the spectrum, right? We've got ring world, where everyone is kind of sweatily holding hands in this giant (laughs) ring. Then we've got random world, where your spouse comes to you from the lottery, which is uh, terrifying. (laughs) All the worlds that can possibly exist exist between those two extremes. So the question is.
4: What do they look like in the middle?
2: Duncan Watts.
4: So you start with Ringworld, and then you say, I'm going to mess with it a little bit.
2: Ringworld exists as this list of network connections in Duncan's computer. So he can tweak it. He can run computations on it. And Duncan and Steve tweak Ringworld. They give just a few people in that billion mile
1: wide ring A friend across the ring. So you can think of this as like an out-of-network friend. Like the nurse in Oslo, none of your friends actually know this person. And what happens when you give Ringworlders just a few random friends?
0: Well, the world effectively instantly became small.
2: Suddenly, Ringworld doesn't have 60 million degrees of separation. More like six.
0: It was you just needed to put in the slightest sprinkling of randomness and bam, the world was suddenly small.
2: This is Duncan and Steve's discovery about small worlds. They can totally exist. All it takes is a few random connections. And we all have them, including those math professors on the fifth floor.
0: My friend, Shondor, is in software in Budapest, Hungary.
3: My old college roommate. The midwife that delivered my first daughter.
1: My uncle, Art.
3: Henrik. Philip. Nargis Hushnud Is an electrical engineer and judo enthusiast.
1: A former truck driver.
3: Artist and gallerist. In Cape Town, South Africa. Florida.
0: And Warsaw.
1: One hallway in Ithaca connects to Budapest, Cape Town, Warsaw to judo enthusiasts, midwives, and truck drivers, that's just one degree of separation. Duncan and Steve proved, mathematically, without any
2: real-world data, that these clickish, connected small worlds can exist. And today, we know they do. Last year, Facebook data scientists crunched the numbers. They found on average, every Facebook user connects to every other Facebook user
1: in about five degrees. The world of human social connections of people on Facebook anyway, it's small, really small. But for Duncan and Steve in 1996, Facebook is still 20 years away. So right now, all they've proven is that small worlds can exist as a thought experiment. They can model a six
2: degrees world. It is sitting in their computer. They can imagine it. Now, they have to find one in the real world. Coming up, we find a small world network, and I mean really small.
3: Like when I trim my beard, it's it's smaller, it's like than, smaller the than the little, little, little hair bits. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> After the break. So at this point, Duncan and Steve have modeled a six degrees world. This model is sitting in their computer. It is cliquish. like Ring World. It is connected. Like, random
1: world. And it's still totally theoretical. Duncan and Steve haven't actually found one of these small world networks in the real world.
2: But eventually, you know, they do.
1: And if you live
2: in New York City, you actually want to see one of these small world networks that Duncan and Steve found. Like, look at it visually. You don't even have to go that far. I went to New Jersey to Andrew Leifer's lab to look at some very tiny worm brains.
3: So this is kind of the wet lab area.
2: Andrew's a neuroscientist at Princeton. The worms he's about to show me are a kind of round worm called C. elegans.
3: They're really small. Like when I trim my beard, it's, it's, smaller, it's like smaller than the than little, the little, little hair bits. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. C. elegans really does look like a little white beard shaving. It's small. It's transparent. And most important for Andrew's purposes, its brain is stupid simple, which makes it one of the
1: easier brains to study. So if you compare it to your brain, which has about 86 billion neurons, C. elegans has exactly 302.
2: And in Andrew's lab, those worm neurons, they come with a bonus feature. Thanks to a jellyfish gene, they glow.
1: Okay,
3: go ahead and take a look.
2: Under the microscope, C. elegans looks a little less like a beard hair, more like a worm.
3: And you can zoom in if you like.
2: And I am focusing in on this big fat one when Andrew flips off the microscope light. I
3: didn't see any head glowing. But no now when head I turn glowing. it off, now the neurons in the head oh should Oh my glow god.
2: Greater. Everything goes dark. And where that worm's head used to be, are these teeny tiny points of glowing green light against this field of black. 302 of them. I am looking at C. elegans brain.
3: So, yeah. so each gl- green speck is is a different neuron.
2: It's like a little uh, a little cosmos in there. These tiny green stars are individual neurons, and right now, incredibly, I am looking at Duncan and Steve's discovery, because C. elegans brain. It's not just small, it's a small world network. So do we know why this worm's brain might be a small world network?
3: Yeah, so that's a really good question.
2: Which is what scientists say when the answer is we don't know. And we don't, maybe it's just chance. But Andrew did mention another possibility. So when I was looking at these worms through the microscope, they kept kind of wiggling unhelpfully out of the frame because apparently microscope lights are kind of hot and uncomfortable if you're a worm. But just that little movement takes this network of sensory neurons talking to this network of motor neurons saying, like, hey guys, this is kind of hot and uncomfortable, let's move away from that.
1: And that communication has to happen really fast. One of the ways that you get that fast, efficient communication, small world networks.
3: And so small world networks might be a really good balance between having local communications, but then also syncing up with the with the larger network.
2: So the reason I went out to New Jersey to look at this particular worm's brain is because back in 1996, Duncan and Steve didn't have a network diagram for the world's social connections. They couldn't just crunch the numbers the way a Facebook data scientist could today. What they did have was the wiring diagram for C. elegans brain, because it was sitting on a floppy disk in the Cornell Library. And when they analyzed that network of neurons, it was cliquish and connected. Every one of those 302 neurons was just a few synapses away
1: from any other neuron in the brain. Which meant that small worlds weren't just something that Duncan and Steve conjured up in a computer. They actually existed in the real world. In fact, it turns out, they were everywhere. In June of 1998,
2: Duncan and Steve reported their discovery in the journal Nature. And that's when small worlds blew up. I mean, could you say that this paper was kind of one of the key papers in pushing networks to the fore in science?
0: Uh, Well, I can't say that. (laughs) You can say that. But the truth is, uh, leaving any modesty out the door, this paper started the network revolution.
2: Soon researchers, they were finding small worlds in places Duncan and Steve hadn't even imagined.
0: This ranges from the boards of Fortune 500 companies to food webs of who's eating who in some pond. You can look at structures of language and what words are connected through common associations, even characters in comic books. So people have done silly kind of whimsical studies of the small world of the Game of Thrones.
2: This was a new field, network science. And it wasn't just about spotting small worlds. It was about answering that question that Duncan had asked all those summers ago in 95. If we live in a
1: six degrees world, Does that matter? And the answer seems to be, yes, it does matter. It mattered in 2014 during the Ebola outbreak. In a small world, an outbreak anywhere has the potential to be an outbreak everywhere. That's why epidemiologists, they're actually using network science to design better disease models. And it matters in transportation, like figuring out how efficient a subway network is.
2: It also matters to psychologists when they're making diagnoses. In the small world of mental health symptoms, actually turns out some symptoms more linked than others.
0: These subjects are not going away. Networks are the structural underpinning of everything being studied in science today. And, and you could say that all the major unsolved problems of science today, I think it's not an exaggeration, essentially all of them, they're about networks at their core.
2: So six degrees seems to be true, on average anyway. Maybe it's not always six handshakes to the president, but chances are the chain linking you to any other person
1: on this planet, it's probably pretty short. And that, that is just a massive idea to get your head around. I mean, what do you do as a human being with this idea? I asked Duncan.
4: You know, I really thought that this would, that when people understood this, it would change how they thought about the world, right? That understanding that you're connected to people who otherwise seem very distant should make you think differently about them, right? That if if an epidemic is only ever a few steps away from you, you should care about Ebola in West Africa. You know, you should care about unrest in the Middle East. That, that, you know, you should care about financial contagion in Southeast Asia. That all of these things... um, have a way of showing up on your doorstep. And it's, it's, it's not enough. It's not good enough to say, these people are far away. These people are different. I don't care. Um, that was always the message that I thought should come out of this work. And so it's actually really disappointing that almost 20 years later, it doesn't seem like that message has
0: sunk in hmm He went... really, he did say that, huh? He did. I'm surprised.
2: Duncan's advisor, Steve Strogatz. Was that your take-home?
0: Or... No, it's not. Yeah. I don't feel that it's changed my thinking much at all, <laughs> because um, part of the paradox of the small world is the difference between the small world of who we're connected to through a short number of steps and who we can influence through a short number of steps.
2: In other words... There's a big difference in the links between you and some other person existing and actually being able to use them.
0: And it's even in the play.
2: Stockard Channing in the play and movie Six Degrees of Separation, she gives this speech where she says.
0: That it's torture.
2: I also find it like Chinese water torture that we're so close because
3: you have to find the right six people to make the connection.
0: I I know that I'm connected, but I have no way of finding the chain. You know, that's the mystery.
1: Six degrees of separation, but to find the right six people. Stanley Milgram found this out the hard way in his letter experiment. Sure, a lot of the letters did make it across the country, but most didn't. People didn't send them, they couldn't find the chain, or they didn't care enough to. And sometimes, that's okay.
0: Part of what's so paradoxical is that even though we know we're connected... We, these people are psychologically so distant from us as they have to be. What if they? What if we did really feel truly connected in a psychological way to all 6 billion? Our, I think that would be cognitive overload of a very great sort.
1: So we've got two mathematicians, two takeaways about what it means to live in a small world. And I have to say, listening to Stephen Duncan, I was nodding enthusiastically
2: both times. I was completely convinced both times. Because life in a small world means feeling connected to your friends and your family and your fellow dentists or computer programmers. But it's also the moment that your city's lights go out because of an equipment failure five states away. It's browsing a college friend's Facebook page and seeing your childhood babysitter in their friends list. It's those moments when one of the billions of links connecting us becomes visible. Just for a second. We're World with a dash of random. Undiscovered is reported and produced
1: by me, Annie Minoff. And me, Ella Fetter. Our editor is Christopher Intagliata. Shout out this week to Ari Daniel, our story consultant, and Alexa Lim for recording help. Thanks also to Daniel
2: Dana, Christian Scatta, Brandon Ector, Rachel Boughton, and Sarah Fishman. We had fact-checking help from Michelle Harris. Original music is by Daniel Peter Schmidt. Additional music
1: is by Paddington Bear and Lee Rosevear. I am robot and proud, wrote our theme. Special thanks to our launch partner, the John Templeton Foundation. Find more Undiscovered at undiscoveredpodcast.org or on Twitter at Undiscovered Pod. And if you like this episode, let us know.
2: Review us on Apple Podcasts. Goat Lady did. Thank you, Goat Lady. See you next week. And one very final question, which is, did you ever find out what was happening with the crickets?
4: No, not really. I mean, <laughs> we um, we did we did characterize the phase response curves, and they were you know consistent with the sort of theory of of, of synchronization. And then, um, you know, I sort of went off on this tangent that I never came back from. So, you know, if anyone's listening now, you know, there's a great experiment that you could do with crickets. <laughs> I'd be happy to talk to you about it. <laughs>